0: One of the most important things about effective teaching, effective instruction, as according to the Lord Buddha, is to teach uh, in a orderly fashion, to not get things out of order and to teach what is appropriate to a beginner, to a beginner what is appropriate to someone in the middle of practice, to that person, and to teach what is appropriate to someone who is advanced, to someone who is advanced. And to teach in order so that without leaving anything out you can lead a person from start to finish. And this is one of the one of the great things that you notice when you start to study the Buddha's teaching, when you start to read or to listen, is so that you see how orderly the Buddha's teaching is, how the Lord Buddha taught in order, uh, not leaving any step out. It's like a step by step approach. And one of the most common Uh, formats that his teachings took was uh, to go through five subjects in order. And this is called the Anupupikata or the talk on uh, increasing or a talk building, building up from one item to another, an ordered talk. And this, as they say, is what the Buddha taught most frequently. Wherever he went, he would always go in this order. Because it does you very little good to teach people advanced meditation techniques or theory if they aren't in a position to understand them. If you start teaching people about impermanence or uh, uh, suffering, non-self, they have to be in a frame of mind where they can understand it first. So you start by simply calming the mind down, calming the person down, down, and bringing them to a state of awareness where they can actually start to understand these things. Our ordinary state of being is quite far from reality or an understanding of reality. Normally we're so caught up in uh, illusion, we're caught up in our make-believe worlds of uh, people, places and things and we assign levels of importance and we give rise to all sorts of addictions and cravings and aversions and frustrations and so on. And so our mind is in sort of in a state of, of flurry, you could say. It's, it's restless. It's not rested. It's not able to rest upon any one object and, and come to understand it and see it clearly. And so the practice of meditation for most people is quite unthinkable. Uh, when they first come to practice meditation, we have to give them very simple advice. And the reason why it's, it's very difficult, another reason is that they haven't been given any preliminary advice on how to be a good person, on how to uh, calm their mind down, how to keep their mind focused, how to, how to run their lives, how to organize their lives, in a way such that when they come to meditate, it will be easy for them. Sort of all of these supporting conditions that we uh, never, never are able to uh, bring into practice. We've never heard. We've never uh, heard of or been taught these things. So we live our lives one way, and our meditation practice is another way, and often they can be conflicting at least for beginners. So This is why the Buddha would teach many preliminary things. <coughs> Altogether there are five topics of discussion in this, this particularly, particular format of the Buddha's teaching. The first is talk on generosity or charity. The second is talk on morality. The third is talk on heaven The fourth is talk on uh, the disadvantages or the dangers or the um, bad side of sensuality. And number five is the advantages, the benefits of leaving behind sensuality. And so normally the Buddha would begin to talk to people about being generous, about being open. Generosity is, a ver- is something that goes hand in hand with, with open-mindedness. Um, when we give, when we're a charitable and a giving person, even if it's just giving our time or our, our support, uh, when we're helpful to people, this, is, this is really could be said to be the basis of spiritual practice or the basis of a spiritual life because mostly in the world what we're dealing with is, they say, a dog-eat-dog world, a rat race, where we're all in a state of competition with with each other and trying to better each other, trying to get ahead, trying to uh, help ourselves all the time. So we have this idea of self and we have many things that we cling to simply as a result of this worldview. Where we, we we hold on to things as mine and, and we become very upset when these things change or when they disappear or when we are unable to obtain them as we would desire so what we're trying to do here is to change this to change the way we normally look at at the world and with the way we live our lives. And so instead of looking for things to help ourselves, we look to help others and to help the general public. Even to give good things to ourselves, you could say, but without making any distinction between self and other, without making any distinction between me and mine and them and theirs, and so helping people, giving and, and being kind and being helpful. One thing I always try to explain is that th- this is particularly, particularly what it means to give or to be charitable. Charity is not just a, um, something that you do because it's good karma or because it's going to bring you some good result, that it's going to bring you riches or luxury or, or so on. It's something that we do to change our minds, to open our minds. What we're talking about when we talk about generosity or charity is a charitable state of mind where we look at someone and we try to help them. We think of what might help them. It doesn't mean we have to give them things. It means we have to uh, try to give them something to make their life better. We're, We're trying to change our way of looking at things because this is the basis for a spiritual life, a spiritual community, even a spiritual society or a spiritual world a world of, of higher thinking where the basic necessities are covered. And we can see that this is very much not the case in modern society, that nowadays we're dealing with a, a state of being where most of the people are, are struggling. And a very, few, very small portion of the world is, is very much in control of the resources and, and the power. And so we have a, a state of, of very much us and them, of me and mine. And, and we can see how this is having a, a terrible effect on people's spiritual uh, well-being and their ability to carry out spiritual practice. So we have to remember always that this is the basis of, of spiritual practices, to be generous and to be kind and to be charitable. The second, that the the Buddha would then go on to talk about morality after he had had talked about generosity and sort of the benefits of generosity, how it makes you a happier person, how it makes you uh, a better person, how it makes you more sure of yourself. Because when you think of these good things that you've done, you feel happy. When people say bad things about you, you don't feel upset and you don't feel worried or, or in doubt of yourself. In short, you don't believe other people when they say bad things about you because you know that for yourself that you're a good person. At this point, you would then move on to, to practice morality. So the beginning of, of our spiritual practice yeah, is to start to control our minds in, in one sense. In the sense of stopping our minds from, from running away. From following after our desires. This is the, the basis of morality is simply stopping your mind from chasing after good things or running away from bad things, to sort of pull the mind back at all times. You know we talk about all these rules that we're supposed to keep as if that were morality, um, but in reality morality is something that has to start with the mind. When, when we do bad things it's because we're angry or upset or we're greedy. We're addicted when we kill, when we steal, when we lie, when we cheat. All of these things, they come from a state of mind. Uh, our mind that is not, you could say, is not moral. So, the characteristic of morality is that we're, we're, when we're sitting in meditation, for instance, that we're beginning to uh, try to look at things and to see things as they are. And so when something comes up, instead of running after it and and becoming upset or attached to it, we just try to see it for what it is. When our mind wanders off, then we bring it back. In the beginning, it's very difficult for us to see anything, very difficult for us to consider or to contemplate on any one object, because our mind is running away all the time. So morality is this step, even before we start to look at the object, where we bring our mind back, where our mind has run off, and we pull it back. We don't let it continue to, to chase after the objects of our desire or displeasure, trying to change them or trying to attain them. And so when, when we give rise to anger, we would say to ourselves, angry, angry. When we give rise to greed or wanting, we say wanting, wanting. When we're thinking about something or when our minds are distracted, we say distracted, distracted, or thinking, thinking. This is the basis of morality, and it's something that you can apply in your daily life. The only reason we would kill or steal or so on is because of an arising of a, a, an unwholesome state of mind. And when we're able to catch that, when instead of hurting other people, even with speech, or, or worse, with, with physical acts, then we catch ourselves when we're angry. Instead of taking things that don't, don't belong to us, or or trying to get the better of people through lying and so on. Sometimes we lie for material benefit. Instead of doing that, we're able to say to ourselves, wanting, wanting, when we, when we want something really bad, or when we're afraid we're going to lose something. And as a result, we're able to keep our precepts. We're able to um, stop ourselves from falling into you know, karma or, or immorality. And this is a very important thing because it's going to be the basis of concentration. This is what's going to fix the mind and focus the mind. It's its immorality, you could say, of, of all sorts that disturbs the mind. Uh, anything that disturbs the mind could be said to be immorality in its, in its uh, b- basic essence. And before you do or say bad things, there's this disturbance in the mind where the mind is... Attracted to something or repulsed by something, and it's no longer equanimous. It's no longer simply aware. It's no longer in a state of of uh, composure. And so, so really, our basic meditation practice is that of morality. What we're talking about when we when the, when the Buddha talk about morality was saying how to calm your mind down. You know, you start from an external. Uh, point of view where you stop killing, you stop stealing, you st- stop doing all these things. And slowly that focuses your mind, because it focuses your way of life. Just as giving and charity uh, expands your mind and opens it up to the possibility of spirituality and higher things, and takes you out of this realm of, of counting money and counting possessions and hoarding things, as, as the purpose in life, to something higher. Uh, morality is the beginning of this higher bracket It's something where you're starting to focus in You stop doing all these bad things your, your mind is going to Your life is going to start to be spiritual Where it's going to start to have meaning And you're going to start to have morals and principles And moreover you're going to start to order your mind Order in the sense of Give order to your mind Give some sense of, of direction where you're not just running around doing all sorts of things and not knowing why you do anything. You start to get a sense of why you're doing things. So at this point, the the Buddha would start to talk about, after he talked about morality, he would start to talk about things like heaven. Now heaven is, as we understand, there are many people in the world who believe in, in heaven, who have this idea of everlasting uh, bliss and happiness in heaven and so for this this is one reason why it would be important to talk about heaven another reason why it's important to talk about heaven or or other realms is giving the idea that this isn't the only life that when we die we, the mind doesn't die as well and in fact death is only really a concept you know when we talk about in, things in terms of biology then we have this idea of death uh, the, the the essence of life has has ceased or the faculty of life has ceased but in in physics, in the reality of it, the physical processes are continuing it's just the biological processes have have broken down, and so whatever was the basis for the mind, there's no clear uh, understanding that the, that this is going to cease. The problem is most people. In modern uh, developed countries get the idea that the brain the brain is producing the mind the brain is giving rise to mental activity and th- there are, there are various problems with this and in, in in terms of the si- even just the science of it because you don 't have a direct correlation between the mind and the brain all the time. the mind can exist uh, without the brain and can be um, separated from the physical body in terms of having out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and so on. There can also be multiple personality disorders, and and there there are many uh, questions about how the brain could give rise to the mind in terms of the science. In terms of the philosophy of it, um, it has serious problems as well, the idea that the brain is producing the mind. Because... Philosophically you have to start with the axiom that the brain exists, that, that the physical exists. And again, scientifically speaking, this is not a, a given, this is not a certainty, this is not a drawn conclusion. The idea of what matter is, is still very much undecided, is still very much up for uh, debate. And so philosophically you, 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 have a, you have to make a choice. If you've already jumped into the, the theory, the idea that physical, it, the, the basis for the universe and the basis for reality is physical, uh, then it goes without saying that, that you're going to come to a conclusion that the physical is going to create everything, including the mind. But you have to jump to this conclusion. And there's no reason philosophically to do so. Because the, the essence of reality is a mental is an awareness-based phenomenon or experience, right? If we sit here and we start from first principles, as Descartes did, you have to say to yourself, well, I think, therefore I am, or or something along these lines. You, You say, the first principle has to be this experience, because the only way we have any clue that anything else exists is through experience. And we put it all together and we're able to uh, we're able to do scientific experiments, and so we get this idea that the physical exists, but we don't quite know what that means. This is just sort of some background, but it's it's another opening of the mind to the idea that there might be something more to reality than just this human life, and so then it opens up all the possibilities of going to hell or to be re- being reborn as another an- another type of being, another form of animal, being born as many different things, it opens up discussions about ghosts, uh, it opens up the discussions about God, uh, and, and um, many, many different things. The Lord Buddha would, would talk about heaven, sometimes giving, it, giving this as a talk to ordinary people who, who believed in, in heaven and were interested in a way to get to heaven. This is a very common teaching to sort of tell people, explain to people, well first of all, just believing X or Y or Z doesn't get you into heaven, there's no reason to believe that. So in another way it's, it's pulling people into this cause and effect nature of reality, to start to think in terms of cause and effect instead of beliefs, where you believe X, Y or Z and then you go to hell, you go to heaven. If you don't believe this, whatever it is, then you go to hell. Then also the idea that it's eternal, And so the Lord Buddha would would point these sort of flawed logic uh, out to people, explaining to them that, you know, heaven is a very pure place, and we all, our understanding of heaven from what we've heard about it, it's a very pure and sacred and and happy place. And so the Lord Buddha would always tease these people and say, well, you know, these people who say they're going to heaven, are they pure and and, and, um, perfect and and happy and so on? I mean, are their minds... You know, in a state where it might lead them to heaven, and of course not, and uh, so then it, it's hard to hard to make any 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 link between the two, these ideas that people have and the, the the fact of being born in heaven. Now, the Buddha had a very rational explanation for how this this all happens. If, I mean, obviously, when your mind is pure, if there is a rebirth, if there is something after then it's going to give rise to something pure. All that's going to happen is a continuation of of the practice that has gone, the progress that has occurred in this life. And we can see that even in this life. We can see that as our minds become pure, as we give up all sorts of unwholesome acts, as we're more kind and generous, our lives change. Many people don't believe this and they don't realize it, and mostly because they're not taught. But when we're taught this and when we're given explanations, we can see that... When we do good things, it gives us happiness and peace, it makes us a better person. And it, it changes the world around us. We're suddenly surrounded by kind and generous and, and uh, grateful people and happy people. Not suddenly, but slowly we're, as we change our, our, our lifestyle and change our environment based on our acts and on our, on our omissions. All of the bad things that we stop doing, it changes our way of life in many ways. So the idea of, of heaven is, is, is sort of this idea of purity, this idea that there is a, a, a result to our actions, that reality works in terms of cause and effect. So giving this explanation about, you know, when you talk about heaven, you should understand what you're talking about, and you should try to bring it into the nature of reality instead of putting it out there as something metaphysical or, or uh, hypothetical and totally unrelated to our current situation, where suddenly you're um, saved by God or so on. And so instead we, we think of it as something to work towards, or something that uh, is at any rate a good sign that you're on the right path. And the other thing to point out that heaven is not permanent, why should it be permanent? There's no reason to believe that anything is permanent, uh, and it, whatever that might look like if something has arisen then one would think certainly that it is able to cease and there's there's no r- rational way you can explain how something could arise and not cease uh, and uh, and we when we start to see especially as we practice that everything that arises ceases and then it only makes sense that heaven is the same and so in another in another sense kind of Putting it in its place, putting all of our goals in, pla- in, in their place. Whereas we might want to be rich and think that's a goal. Well, the explanation that riches aren't permanent, uh, all the way up to heaven. When we say we want to go to heaven, well, why should we think that heaven is permanent? So talking about heaven isn't important. Talking about the afterlife, talking about when we die, all of these kind of things fit in this category. After talking about this, you can see how it's, it's, it's slowly progressing to sort of higher and higher things where we would take someone out of their ordinary state where they're just struggling to get by or living their lives or, or, or you know, involved in, in the world out there to, to start to come and think about something maybe higher, like why are we doing this? Why are we living our lives? What is it all for? And really starting to focus ourselves and give meaning to our lives, and so we've gotten up to heaven. Now we come on to uh, what, what might be even a higher goal than heaven, or a higher subject than heaven. And so it's it's going in increasing uh, subtlety. And so the one what, what's what's higher than heaven is is this concept of the disadvantages of sensuality or the dangers of sensuality. Because even heaven or whatever pleasures and happiness could come from being in a heavenly existence uh, is still something limited. Is still something that has its benefit, that has its gratification, but which also has its dangers. Because when you cling to anything you can see that you become addicted to it. You start to Uh, desire it and crave it and want more all the time. We can see that in this life. If we're addicted and attached to something there are all sorts of processes going on in the mind. Chemical reactions. And these chemical reactions are not static. Meaning it's not a case of when we get something we feel happy and every time we get it we feel happy. As we get it more and more we feel less happy for getting it. The stimulus in the brain is, is, is weakened by the continual usage of the, of the chemical process. And so we need more of it to make ourselves happy. It's a real drug addiction for everything. Everything that makes us happy, brings this state of pleasure about, is working with the chemicals in the brain which don't work in a static cycle. They become less and less productive. And so we need more and more of the stimulus or more extreme forms of stimulus to make us happy. And we can see this with, with with just about everything in in life. And so we start to put everything in perspective. That whatever you see, it's just seeing, and, and uh, it, all it's going to give you is some kind of ephemeral pleasure that lasts for a very short time and then disappears. Everything that we hear is only hearing. When we smell, smelling, taste, tasting, feel, feeling, and starting to to see the difference between a simple awareness and peace and, and contentment with things as they are uh, versus this chaotic state of always chasing after things, this unstable uh, way of life where we're always running after and chasing after things, or running away and chasing away bad things. We can see how our addictions to things lead us to fight, it is sensuality that, that causes us to fight, causes us to um, hurt others. Our, our desire for uh, happiness, our desire for our own benefit causes us to hurt and to... Um, and causes us to, 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 to be discontent when we don't get things just the way we want. So people might do or say things that are, are unpleasant to us. Whereas when they say good things to us, we're very happy, then when they say things that are not what we would like to hear, then we feel very unhappy and we might say or do bad things to them. When people act in ways that are not pleasant to us, you know, cutting in in front of us in traffic, or um, cheating us, or stealing or s- from us, or so on, lying to us, all of these things, they make us very, very unhappy, and they give us great suffering. Because of our addiction to a certain way of life or a certain uh, state of existence. We start to see that it's really a process of addiction. It's something that that just gets worse and worse and worse because you need more extreme forms of, of stimuli. Until finally you crash and you can't get what you want and then you suffer. And everything is like this. There's nothing which makes you happy now which is going to make you happy forever. Eventually it's either going to disappear or... Um, you're going to give it up, and you're going to learn to live without it. So this is this is really the crux of where the Buddha's teaching steps in and says, "Okay, the, the, this is your state of life where your our happiness we we it, it hinges on the uh, obtaining of certain phenomena of certain." objects of our desire. And and this state of being, this state of life, this way of life is is really un, un, uh, unsustainable. It's not something that is stable or is going to give us any lasting peace or happiness. And so um, what we're offering, in, what the Buddha was offering is another way, is a way to, to overcome this. And the, how he would approach this is he'd say, you know, this this way of life of sensual, sensual pleasures and any idea that we might even go to heaven or, or even just that we might be happy here on earth. Because one, one objection that people often have to spirituality is this uh, sort of this counter, counter practice that people would say, no, the, the good life is just to find happiness here and now, to uh, live for the day, live for the moment and try to live, live life to its fullest. And it's a very hastily and un- unthought-out um, sort of theory that doesn't hold in reality. So when people say they're going to just live life, to f- eat, drink, and be merry, and because tomorrow we may die, this, this idea doesn't hold out in reality, that actually these people are certainly not happier than people who take up a, a proper spiritual life that they generally live their lives unhappy, and, un, and discontent, and angry, and frustrated, and going through all sorts of turmoil, even killing themselves. The, the extreme hedonist is often the, the first person to start to contemplate suicide, which is a very strange thing. All the movie stars who have it so, so good, and have so, so much uh, so adoring fans, and so on, and they become so depressed. Because it's a chemical reaction in the brain, the, the lack of, or the incredible attainment of such incredible uh, uh, bliss and pleasure is followed by a, a withdrawal state of um, uh, depression, where the mind is unable to get the chemicals that it needs to be happy And so coming to see this reality that actually it's a flawed system, it's a flawed idea, and it's not nothing new, it's not something that we thought up in modern society. It was certainly around in the Buddhist time, and it's cer- certainly been around, I'm sure, since the beginning of time. Uh, it's not something that we should think, feel proud of ourselves that we've thought up in modern Western society by any means. It exists in all societies, this idea that you can just live for the moment and, and you know, try to uh, I'll eat, drink, and be merry, and so on. It doesn't hold out hold up to reality. It, it leads to a very coarse state of existence, and people who are very, you could say, vulgar or coarse individuals, uh, people who don't have a lot of, of patience, who don't have a lot of kindness, who aren't generally nice people to be around. And so. This is the argument that the Buddha had why you should take up spiritual practice. This is really the crux of it. This is where you say, there's something more to life than just this. Because we're, we're trying to evoke these questions of uh, have people to start asking themselves, you know, why am I doing this? And when you can't come up with an answer to realize that these things that we do in our lives and we, these goals that we have are in the end really pointless. You know, there's in, in a few billion years whatever whatever goal you might have in a few, few billion years, as I understand, the Earth is going to go crashing into the sun. So you can talk about changing the world and, and 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 you know even all these wonderful ideas that people have. You know, in the end, this whole planet is going to be erased. So any physical trace of uh, of who you are and what you did is going to be just gone, obliterated. So then we start to turn to the ideas of the mind and the existence and continued existence. And then we talk about samsara and say you know even if you ta- even if you understand that the mind exists and that it's not restricted to this one short uh, existence then you're still talking about just a cycle of continued suffering and birth old age sickness death where you always have to come back and do this again And while it might be fun to do this a few times and try to get it right, uh, you can imagine having to do this a thousand times or a million times, where we have to forget everything and then relearn it all again and go through all the suffering that we've gone through just to get to where we are today, to a state of, of somewhat stability. And so finally the Buddha would go on to the fifth topic of discussion, which was the benefits of A practice of, of giving up sensuality Which is really the practice of meditation Giving up this need that we have for You know, people will often say That's what makes life, life uh, Pleasure and, and, and displeasure are what makes life, life And that's just another theory that's just talk People say that um, I don't know exactly what it could mean That you say that's what makes life, life I mean, obviously people who give it up Are still living And the funny thing is that they're even happier. They're far happier. And they tend to laugh and to smile and to live their lives in total peace. Not always happy, but sometimes just calm. But never unhappy. This is the funny thing about it. When people, they claim this, that you have to like and dislike things to really live. And this is probably because they've never had an example of someone who lived their life in another way, trying to give up their likes and dislikes. These people are generally very peaceful and happy and free from all of the stresses and uh, burdens of people who are chasing after their likes and dislikes. And so this is the, the, the case for meditation, that meditation really has benefits, that it brings about good results, that when you practice meditation, you're going to become a happier and more peaceful person. And slowly this is what happens. I think everyone can agree that it's not something that just happens overnight, that suddenly, wow, you see all these benefits, and suddenly you have friends, and, and uh, you know, all of these good things happening to you, suddenly you have a good job, or lots of money, or something like this. No, meditation has this benefit of changing who you are, changing the way you look at the world, and this is a very slow process. It's something that, in the beginning, you think is going to go quite quickly, and you think that you're going to come out of this with a profound change of who you are, and we sometimes manufacture this. Many people come out of meditation thinking, wow, I'm a changed person. And then they go back to their lives and, and realize that they're not quite so changed as they thought they were. But they're a little changed. And then they come back or they continue practicing on their own. And as they practice, they realize, wow, they really didn't change all that much. But they did change. And this is what can eggs them on. And as they go on, they realize how slow the process it is, but that it's really working and they can be frustrated and dis- discouraged by how slow it is, but they, um, when they do see the progress, when they reflect on it, and when they go back and um, meet with old situations and are able to deal with them in a much more calm and, and rational manner, and are able to find peace and happiness even among great uh, adversity, then they can see for themselves that there is great benefit for, for that comes from giving up sensuality. So the Buddha would, would, would go in this order and slowly, slowly describing the Buddha's teaching because you can't just come to someone and say, you know, look, giving up sensuality is a great thing. They'll, they'll be very much turned off. Most people in this world don't want to hear this sort of thing. They think it's a sort of a ascetic viewpoint of people who like to torture themselves. They don't give thought to the idea that the chasing after of sensuality may be uh, a bad thing and this is because they don't have the the basic state of mind that is going to allow them to consider it rationally you can't just explain it to people either this is why the buddha would start with such seemingly unrelated to- topics as charity and morality and even heaven or or um, the afterlife but we're going and we're taking people out of a state of mind which just can't possibly comprehend reality. You just couldn't talk about it, trying to bring people to this state. So I think this is sort of a, a good way of, for us to approach the Buddhist teaching. And another idea is that this might be helpful to everyone here, that, that it sort of helps us to see um, why we should want to practice meditation, that there are ben- great benefits that come from it. We, our mind starts to be calm, our mind starts to be clear, We're able to see things, understand things better, understand our own uh, addictions and attachments, our own failings, our own habits and um, our, our own bad habits and to start to break out of them and to change who we are. All of these things that we'd like to change about ourselves, we start to see that they can actually be molded and changed. We can become a better person. We can become a happier and more peaceful person. And then the Buddha would move on to talking about the Four Noble Truths, which is basically the, the practice of, of seeing things clearly and coming to let go of things. Now, I'm not going to go in, into that tonight because I'm going to let us start practicing. as I think the best way to learn about the Four Noble Truths is to start to focus and to start to look and see uh, what is it that we have inside and to see how it works. And as you start to see how it works... You should be able to see for yourselves the Four Noble Truths, and as a result, um, be able to slowly, slowly free yourself from all of your, all of the evils and immorality, unwholesomeness that exists in our mind, all the things that are causing us suffering, that are causing us to uh, live a a less than perfect or a, a less than meaningful life. So without further ado, we'll start with mindful prostration, then walking, and then sitting.